Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday, the 7th of September. And we are discussing anniversaries this week. One year on from the ill-fated arrival of Liz Truss as Prime Minister, we're looking at the health of the house builders, the housing market, and indeed the UK economy, all of which were upended by the fallout from the infamous mini-budget, though, of course, inflation and interest rates were rising long before that as well. Barrett Developments published full-year figures this week, so we'll be discussing what its future may hold. Then we move on to the UK economy and ask whether it really is such an outlier globally. That's in the wake of some ONS data last week that really upended once again some of the assumptions that we had about post-pandemic performance. And finally, we'll be looking at a company that IPO'd two years ago this month. That's Oxford Nanopore, which, as with most biotech businesses, has since fallen on tougher times share price-wise. Joining me to discuss all of this are over the line Alex Newman. Hi, Dan. And Mitchell Labiak. Hi, Dan. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. And in the studio, we have Jennifer Johnson. Hi, Dan. Good to be here. And Tamani Taylor. Hello. Thanks for having me. We're going to begin with Barrett Developments. Mitch, you covered the figures for us. Uh, There was a dividend cut in there, but at the moment, as per the last six months, what everyone's really interested in is the the forward-looking stuff, the recent uh, sales, the recent figures. What did we discover in those results? Yeah, it's it's a funny one because the market reacted somewhat negatively um, uh, towards the results, but I think the market was, I would submit that they were overreacting somewhat because in in response to your question, what did we learn? We actually didn't learn a huge amount new from their results because they, they brought, they mentioned a lot of this in a, in a trading update anyway. So, um, but I suppose the, the big thing though, and getting onto your point about going forwards, the, the stuff we learned was relatively positive. I mean, obviously the company, you know, the, the results weren't great. But as I say, they mentioned that this would sort of be the case in their trading um, update. But on a forward sales basis, forward sales have actually improved um, from. Uh, so if we're looking at, yeah, forward sales as of the 27th of August are up compared with as of the 30th of June. So that was some good news in there. Um, although it's hard to know whether that trend will continue, you know, forward sales have sort of gone up and down um, throughout the year. They're obviously down sort of on an annual basis um, and they sometimes follow the season. So it's hard to know whether that's the start of a house price recovery. And of course, if you look at the most recent house price index, um, it certainly doesn't look like that would be the case. So um, yeah, lots of lots of bad news, but arguably lots of bad news that it um, already trailed um, and uh, therefore... I think the the equity market reaction was a bit harsh, personally. Yeah, one thing you talked about in the results as well is how Barrett does differ from other house builders. I mean, they have moved in tandem uh, in lots of cases in recent months, but, you know, Barrett itself is arguably in a stronger position than some of its peers. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's yeah. So I think the big part of that is is it's it's cash holdings and it's it's land bank. So um, it's land bank is I, I use Cressner Nicholson as a, a comparison in the piece, which is perhaps a little bit unfair because Cress Nicholson's a much smaller house builder, but 
um, it just it just makes for a very interesting comparison. So the Lang Bank is about twice the size of Crest Nicholson. Um, now they are much larger than that as a company. So there's arguments to be made that actually their land bank should be even bigger than that. But even still, scale is scale, and a bigger land bank is better for house builders, especially um, when the market's in a downturn. It means you can sort of ride things out. I think the really strong sort of differentiator for um, Barra isn't so much the size of its land bank, but the uh, the size of its cash holdings. So it has about one billion, just over one billion cash, um, which is about a quarter of its market cap compared with Crest Nicholson, which has about 60 million in cash um, or about 10% of its market value. So when you sort of, um, yeah, when you compare those two things, that's sort of, I think, what what makes Barrett uh, an outlier in a in a positive sense, arguably. When we look at house builders, obviously, with all that's happened over the past year, you know, since the mini budget, even before that, you know, everyone is aware we're in a downturn, you know, the housing market is struggling, it's going to be struggling for some time. Uh, Yet you do still get these periodic sell offs, as we've seen sometimes in relation to macro events, you know, if inflation is worse than expected, i.e. therefore implying rates are going to go higher than people thought. Equally, you know, it is very much dependent on perhaps the situation not being as bad as people might think you know housing market figures i think it's fair to say haven't been as disastrous as people thought they might be earlier in the year when when you look at the valuation for something like barrett which has held up relatively well actually over the longer term compared with some peers how do you see that at the moment how do you see the argument there in terms of you know the, the equation waiting for an improvement versus you know what's happening operationally yeah, I think that's I think that's a very good point. You know, you're you're sort of getting on two things there, which is one, the housing market doing better than people had originally anticipated um going into this downturn, and two, the valuation argument for Barra. Um obviously the two things are linked. Um I, I I've still put um I put Barrett on a hold rather than a buy. And I think my logic for that being that um while the the valuation does look good, I mean it's it's cheap. A lot of the house builders are cheap at the moment. Um, it's there's an argument to be made that um, the the performance, you know, the the better than expected performance of the housing market might be about to change. This was sort of Halifax when it came out today with its housing price figures, and it noted uh, the steepest annual fall since two thousand nine. That was essentially what it said. It said, look, you know, things have held up until now. But now these things are finally feeding through into house prices. Um, there's also the possibility that Halifax could be wrong again and that house prices continue to outperform everyone's expectations. But I think it's notable that even the house builders themselves are quite bearish on, on the housing market and this housing downturn continuing. So I think that's what people are pricing in is that while it's been better than expected so far, that there's an argument to make that it's simply delay, delaying the inevitable. And it's it's more the case that it's just been a longer time than expected for interest rate rises to sort of feed through into the wider market. Yeah, and there are some of the factors we've discussed before on the show as well, aren't there, in terms of, you know, just a, a lack of transactions is perhaps helping prop things up, which is also the case with land prices too, which certainly haven't fallen as far as some people thought either. Again, partly because the number of transactions are so low that, you know, there's not perhaps not much price discovery going on. Uh, Alex, just to bring you in, because I know 
you've had some thoughts on the house builders in the past and in particular on valuations. You know, how do you see the case for, for Barrett perhaps at, at the moment? Yeah, not always not always very smart thoughts, um, as it's proved to be. But um, I suppose if we're, if we're talking about anniversaries, you know, just looking back at where interest rates were a year ago, uh, it's kind of hard to forget how quickly things have gone up. So, you know, bank rate at the beginning of September was about 1.75. I think, yeah, it was the September uh, raise which brought it up half percentage point to um, uh, 1.75%. So... I mean, since then, they've, uh, you know, they've tripled. I, I completely agree with what Mitch is saying and, uh, you know, around the sort of Halifax narrative as well. We might, you know, we might just be getting going with, um, you know, the, 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 real, the real crunch in transaction volumes because of mortgage affordability, which Barrett flagged in their, in, uh, in their results. I mean, I'd also agree completely. I mean, they, the shares do look... They do look very, very cheap now. So if you strip out cash, which you probably shouldn't do, because that is one of the the major kind of selling points of the share that you have this huge margin of safety. But if you do if you do strip out cash, you still have a very profitable business, which um, is would then be trading at um, a forty three percent discount to book value. So you know that's that's the sort of discount that traditional value investors like you know, Benjamin Graham and sort of Warren Buffett talk about that if you assume things aren't going to absolutely collapse and that house building market is going to recover in, in the coming years, um, you are potentially buying an asset for almost half price. I mean, the obvious question, which, you know, Mitch also alluded to there is whether this is, you know, beneath all the rubble, there is a truly quality business here. Um, and that's, you know, that's maybe questionable of the, the in, entire sector because, you know, it, it really doesn't have a lot of control over ultimately over um, its uh, its end markets as the last couple of years have proven. Um, if I were an investor in a house builder, you know, I'd, I'd probably want a slightly bolder strategy from, you know, the likes of Barrett. I mean, at the moment we've 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 sort of got this. Okay, things are uh, we we get kind of get sentiments up a little bit, sentiments down a little bit. There's no kind of bold moves in terms of. You know, are there merge opportunities here to reduce cost savings materially? Um, are there other ventures to get into? You know, kind of buybacks, dividends. You know, soft peddling the the operational continuity narrative is not hugely compelling. It might might um, explain some of the you know the, some of the weakness in sentiment that there's not a lot actually for investors to cling on to apart from a dividend, which you know, following this cut, you know, hasn't really been hasn't been the greatest saving grace over the last three years. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I think there's argument to say things are bottoming here, but whether things are just going to bump along for a, a while, share price wise, um, remains to be seen. But I think the possibility is that is more likely than not. Yeah, it's interesting, that point, isn't it? Where you talk about perhaps reticence. I think on the, the earnings call, Barrett said as well, this was largely in relation to a land bank activity, but you know, part of their reticence there is because the the forward sales picture or the sales picture, as Mitch mentioned earlier, has been so inconsistent that they are, which kind of, you know, they said, you know, that means they don't really have the confidence to do much because it's changing so much month for month. You know, you can have a good month, you can have a bad month, which, yeah, which does kind of suggest as a a management team, they should maybe be taking a bit more, uh, uh, you know, being on the front foot a little bit more rather than sitting and watching the figures as, as we all are and waiting to see what's happening with the 
with the market in general. Let's turn to the wider economy now, though, because, again, things have been you know pretty tough and we've had some pretty gloomy forecasts over the past year, particularly about 11 months ago, right after the, uh, the mini-budget. But it's fair to say, I think, that things haven't gone quite as bad as some of those very uh, bad forecasts suggested. And then on top of that, Hermione, last week we did get some ONS data regarding uh, GDP from prior to that, back in 2021 mainly, which, which really uh, changed the narrative in some ways, the, the narrative we've been telling, we being you know the country in general, about economic performance over the past few years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in August, things still looked pretty bad. So that's when the ONS released the second quarter GDP figures. And they were still suggesting that our GDP was below its pre-pandemic level. And it kind of seemed as though the UK's recovery was very slow and internationally quite embarrassing. So they published some figures suggesting that other G7 economies had bounced back far quicker. But then last week, the ONS released some revised figures and they suggested that the UK had actually recovered to its pre-COVID level by the end of 2021. And economists have kind of projected these growth figures forward. And that suggests that the economy was actually 1.5% above its pre-pandemic level by the second quarter of this year. So suddenly we start looking sort of middle of the pack when it comes to G7 economies. And as you say, it's kind of changed the economic narrative. What were the reasons behind these revisions? I mean, calculating GDP, you know, I'm sure is a pretty difficult game at the best of times. But but what caused this kind of shift? We're really keen to stress that calculating GDP, especially when you've had such a big shock as the pandemic, is really difficult. Um, What they did is they looked at the costs facing different sectors of the economy rather than just relying on turnover data. Um, This meant some quite big downward revisions for some sectors. So steelmaking performed very badly. It turned out that a lot of the added value was coming from energy used, not actually added value from producing metal. Other sectors did better. Um, Services sector was quite mixed, but it looked as though the health services actually um, produced more than was previously thought. Uh, and what's the impact, if anything, on government finances as a result of these these changes? I mean, Jeremy Hunt was pretty jubilant when the figures came out, but I think, as you said, the key thing is that they're quite backward-looking. So it only looks at the period up to 2021. Um, and economists have pointed out that it doesn't really say anything about GDP looking ahead. Um, if anything, it could be evidence of a bigger output gap, which is where you actually have demand running ahead of your long-run capacity, which would actually be quite worrying for the Bank of England in a time of high inflation. I suppose on the plus side, maybe something like the health sector, you know, productivity, the improved productivity there, given it's a big employer. I mean, I'm really uh, spitballing here, but, uh, you know, that could be positive for our general productivity problems. Perhaps, you know, things aren't quite as bad on that front as we, as we thought. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it, is, it is good news for productivity and it is good news for the sort of economic narrative of how, how the UK is doing. Um, if I could just, I will add a couple of boring caveats, though, which is that the ONS is very quick to produce these revisions and it's been one of the first of kind of major economies to publish them. So this does mean that other G7 countries could produce their own upward revisions and then we could start looking like we're back of the pack again. And um, it also follows on from some quite dramatic downward revisions that they made this time last year. So if you look at it over a kind of two year horizon, it smooths out a bit. So um, yeah, pinch of salt to be taken there. Pinch of salt, exactly. What about uh, what we've got coming up? You know, uh, obviously, well, we could have said this anytime really this year, but we are potentially now finally approaching a a peak in uh, interest rates. But we do have some 
uh, data next week, which could still put a spanner in the, the works there. Yeah, we've got some very interesting data coming up over the next couple of weeks. So um, next week, we've got wage growth, um, which was um, which is running very hot in the UK. So wage growth is running higher than it is in the euro area and in the US. And this really matters because it feeds into services inflation, which is something that's really worrying the Bank of England at the moment. Um, economists are expecting it to slow down um, over the rest of the year, but it will be really interesting to see how the figures come out. We've also got inflation figures coming out the following week, um, and it looks as though we might actually see a slight uptick in inflation um, in this month's data, which wouldn't necessarily be anything to worry about because um, it's down to something called base effects, which I've written about before, which is pretty technical and I suspect slightly boring, but it basically comes down to the fact that when we calculate the annual rate of inflation, we compare it to the same month last year. So what was happening a year ago has a big impact on today's figures. And a year ago, there was a big fall in petrol prices, which dragged inflation down. And when this rolls off calculations, it could be quite unflattering for this month's figures. So it looks as though economists are thinking we might see a small uptick to about 7%, but then a fall over the rest of the year. And that is kind of in keeping with other countries, what we've seen, you know, it's not going to be a smooth path downwards um, inflation-wise, albeit we are still at a higher level than a, a lot of these countries uh, in true, terms of yeah. CPI headline figures. Uh, Andrew Bailey, though, has been making some less hawkish noises than than in the recent past, in the past few days, so which, again, is maybe a, maybe a positive sign for now. Yes, definitely. I mean, I feel like I've been saying this for months, but it looks though like we might be near the top of the cycle, and he, he said something to that effect um, very recently. Um, also very interesting were some comments that the Bank of England chief economist made um, where he was comparing the path of interest rates to different mountains, but he, he basically said that the bank would favour a resolute profile rather than a spike, which sort of people interpreted as suggesting that the bank would raise rates a bit higher but keep them there rather than spiking up to a very high level and then quickly cutting. Um, in terms of what happens next, I mean, market pricing um, is a bit more hawkish. So that seems to imply that rates could go up to almost 5.75% and peak a bit later on. But among economists, I mean, there seems to be a consensus that we might see another 25 basis point peak in September. I'm sorry, another 25 basis point hike in September, which would take us to a peak of 5.5%. Um, I think in any case, the next meeting is going to be very interesting. And I think we'll see lots of speculation about whether this is it. We did see in the, in the US last month, you know, a bit of an increase in uh, in bond yields, which was perhaps a kind of realisation that the rates wouldn't be falling as quickly as possible, which, you know, is a similar situation over here that does, you know, all this talk of peak peak rate seems to make sense to me, but the yeah. question of when rates will fall seems to be a long, long way off from I my perspective. That's a great point. We've been so fixated on where's the peak, where's the peak, how high are they going to go? And I think the next stage will be this, well, how long are they going to stay high for and, and when will cuts ultimately come? Yeah. Yeah. Alex, uh, what's your take on economic performance? I mean, you know, given all the things we've discussed, GDP this year has been better than expected. You know, we are not in recession as we uh, as we speak, technically. Uh, how do you run the rule over these kind of figures? Well, um, I suppose there's two, two kind of contradictory almost takeaways that I would have from, uh, you know, the UK economic narrative and, and how it's seemingly switched a little bit in the last week i mean one is i found a really interesting comment i think it was that in the ft they quoted the um analyst at ubs who said you know britain's there's some aspects of britain's statistics and the way we the way we publish them which actually makes them look quite bad when they're first published and the opposite is true in the us so you know it's probably a bit of a thin theory to extrapolate from that but you, you know you do wonder whether this can 
create some self-fulfilling loops you know in the us more optimism up front means you know more optimism about investing capital spending and the like and because you know uh, investors businesses are, are, are more willing to, to buy into a kind of growth narrative uh, they're less likely to hunker down and it's sort of you know self-fulfilling whereas we retroactively think oh things weren't quite as bad as we thought they were going to be a year ago uh, in the UK and then I suppose the other you know the, the other takeaway for investors might be you know and a little bit to play devil's advocate here um, might be you know you know you know kind of a bit of a shrug at this this ONS data revision uh, you know I'm not sure anyone really invests in the UK because they think it's an economic growth engine or that it has the capacity to be to to lead the pack so you know and and even if you wanted to you know, it's, it's major stock index does a pretty poor job of of capturing the UK economy. So yeah, maybe the FTSE 250 is a better yardstick for a more reflective UK PLC. Um, but it's had a, you know, it's had a pretty rough five years all the same. I, I think moreover, you know, from investor perspective, the the big steers for why you would invest in, in UK companies come down really, I think, more to the individual companies and stories themselves and the backdrop of UK, you know, corporate governance being, you know, one of the better ones uh, globally. It's not that I, I think anyone really um, thinks that the UK has a, has a chance of outperforming its G7 pack. And we make a, you know, it's, it's easy to make a good, uh, a big deal of how we can stack up against other countries. Um, but when it when you sort of boil it down to, I suppose, a portfolio investor level, you know, it's more than micro questions, which I think investors need to obsess about um uh, really because um it's, it's easy to sort of get distracted in the grand narratives which um which don't always dictate how how things are going to go as, as we've seen yeah i think uh, personally i do think there is a bit of a uh you know that that is obviously the, the the basics of what we cover. You know, company fundamentals, that kind of thing. But I, I do think, not unreasonably, given all the country has seen over the past few years, that that sometimes people can be quite down on the UK. Again, there are good reasons for that in a lot of cases. Uh, so, so to me, it's sometimes interesting when when the figures do come out to be a little bit better than expected. But whether that has an actual impact on sentiment more generally is is an open question. I suppose to to uh, stick with the uh, slightly more downbeat aspect of things we have seen a reminder this week of the importance of uh you know maintenance capex to bring it back to the company side of things fixing the roof while the sun is shining as it were which was a phrase used a long time ago but perhaps not actually put into practice uh let's get back to the uh, company level though and uh, talk about perhaps one of those interesting uk companies oxford nanopore which as i said the top listed a couple of years ago this month uh, genome sequencing, so uh, you know, very easy to understand, simple stuff we're talking mm -hmm. about here. Uh, it, it's had a tougher time over the past two years, as you would expect for any you know biotech stock. It had some figures out this week, though, Jen. How is it looking operationally at the moment? Uh, so it's a little bit of a bit a mixed bag for Oxford Nanopore. Um, at the moment. So as you've kind of mentioned earlier, there is this um, biotech's kind of stuck in a, in a bit of a rut post-pandemic, but Oxford Nanopore has another factor kind of weighing on it, which is that it had a rather significant government uh, contract. So for COVID testing, um, that's testing sort of the spread of, of the virus. Um, and that was a major growth driver, but the contract wound up last year. And now there's an anticipated full year headwind of £18 million connected to things like inventory write downs um, 
And then another kind of driver um, of of revenue at Oxford Nanopore was something called the Emirati Genome Programme, which is a public health initiative in the UAE. Uh, that isn't expected to bring in uh, as much revenue this year either. So Oxford Nanopore is kind of looking at uh, a future where it's trying to sell its sequencing devices um, through its life science research tools division. So these devices uh, have previously been referred to as the smartphones of sequencing, meaning they're handheld and they provide fast results. There are so many potential applications of these devices, which is what makes the company exciting. Uh, For instance, one product uh, being developed by the company recently met World Health Organization criteria for detecting drug-resistant strains of tuberculosis. The company kind of mission statement is uh, it wants to enable the analysis of anything by anyone anywhere which sounds a bit lofty what they really mean is that they want to provide real-time analysis of dna and rna so that you can understand say you're a scientist in the field you can understand the biology of plants animals viruses etc without all the hassle of sending samples back to a lab for analysis and then waiting for results oxford nanopore is now in this stage where it sort of has to convince uh you know end users researchers scientists uh you know clinicians in the field that they need these very handy devices and as with a lot of companies of this ilk, you know, given the pressure on uh, the present value of future cash flows, etc., over the past few months, years, the, the emphasis really has been on getting to profitability or asking companies when they are going to do that. What's Oxford Nanopore's target on this front? Um, so it's sort of hard to say really what, um, when the company will, will reach profitability. Analysts have sort of acknowledged uh, that while the sequencing devices it produces are highly innovative, uh, the widespread adoption of them could take time. So it's sort of a the question of when the company gets to profitability is a little bit of a how long is a is a piece of string question. Uh, the challenge is for the company to get its sequencing devices out there to the people who would benefit from using them. And if you're looking at the interim figures, as we did this week, they're sort of moving in the wrong direction. Um, they made a pre-tax loss of 66 million compared to uh, a pre-tax loss of just under 28 million last year. So in by some metrics, uh, the company is kind of moving in the wrong d- direction. Obviously, there is the headwind from the end of the COVID contract, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the company was keen to kind of emphasise that in its results, that there are some one-offs that have happened, um, but it still sees itself with with this kind of um, growth potential. And there are some, um, you know, valuation metrics and that would suggest that, that markets also uh, really kind of value the, the company's potential quite highly. Yeah, I think as well in terms of the company's own targets, they, I think full year or financial year 2026 is when they see kind of, from what I've seen, adjusted EBITDA reaching break even. But the question of whether you count that as profitability, I suppose, Mm. comes down to how big those adjustments are driving, you know, revenues at the moment, though, consumable revenues is is the big kind of segment at the moment, one of its... One of those devices, the Promethean, I think it's pronounced, mm. seems to be quite a, a big driver at the moment. But, but I suppose it, in an example of you know having to invest for growth, still they have lowered gross margin forecasts for this full financial year mm. because of some of the investments they're making there. So 
I mean, do, is that going to be still the, the big driver of the next couple of years, these these particular devices? Or, or is it a case that I think, as they say themselves, they have so many customers in so many different areas that they like to give themselves optionality and plenty of different potential routes to growth? Yeah, I think it's, it's somewhat uh, the latter. Um, consumables, recurring consumables revenue accounted for 75% of revenues in life science research tools. So that's the part of the business that's not the Emirati Genome Project and it's not, or program rather, the Emirati Genome Program and it's um, not the COVID contract. So consumables are not the devices themselves. Consumables are kind of the accessories that you need to run the sequencing equipment and to get the results from the sequencing equipment. Um, so it's a good sign that recurring consumables revenue is, is you know, growing um, because it presumably means that people are buying these devices and continuing to use them over and over. Obviously, consumables are tied to selling the devices also. So that's sort of the... Um, the key thing. And yes, I think inevitably uh, on the investing side of things, when you're creating, these are fairly novel devices. You do have a few other companies. Illumina in the US is sort of the, the big major competitor in this area. Uh, but it's inevitable when you're working uh, on these kind of new technologies that you're going to need to invest for growth. But again, that's going to skew certain figures for the company in the next couple of years. It's really, um, though its technology might be mature and though it has many, many applications, I think the company says it's, um, you know, it's doing sequencing in, or its devices are sequencing in something like 120 countries. Um, it's still in the very early stages uh, of, of commercialization. And there's got to be some kind of, you hope there's some kind of inflection point for the company where where people sort of realise the, the utility of the, the things that it makes. Alex, I'm going to bring you in again on Oxford Nanopore this time. Uh, what's your take on the company, on the valuation as well, in particular, perhaps? Yeah, um, I mean, the, the, I mean, the first thing you have to say is like, oh boy, did they and their investment banks get the timing right in terms of listing? I mean, it sort of shares two thirds down since then. I mean, what what you you know, one plus point of having listed in 2021 is that they obviously raised a good chunk of money. Uh, when the market was really, really hot. So that has given them, you know, the runway to, uh, to you know, survive for the next few years because they are in serious cash burn mode right now. Uh, I mean, the, the, you know, the valuation, I think you're like, you know, your guess, anyone's guess is as good as mine um, right now because they are, as I said, burning through the cash. Um, and, you know, Jen, Jen knows the company um, uh, a lot better than I do. But, you know, it sounds like what from, from what she's saying that they have it's an excellent you know set of ip and some some great products without a fully formed market yet so when we're talking about adjusted ebitda break even by um you know 2026 um i would i would probably i'd probably discount that even you know even for management to to cling on to something like that because if you if we're assuming sort of 100 million cash burn a year by that point you know there's probably only you know there's probably only about 200 million pounds left in the kitty and there's starting to be questions about liquidity um etc so you know we're not we're not there yet but i think what has to happen between now and then is exactly exactly that point does does something you know does something material in their market happen um to really change the fundamentals of uh, of you know the products they're able to sell uh and 
or do you get a you know a would-be acquirer with very deep pockets and a sort of 10-year horizon um to say okay excellent ip i'm gonna i'm gonna pay double your market value um come and join us thank you very much which i think is possibly one of the best hopes for for shareholders as things uh, look now and that is until a market does really sort of seem to balloon for um the company because what shareholders don't have is their own 10-year runway right now um so it's a little bit of a, a one of those kind of fingers crossed situations that's not to say that you know there aren't really exciting things about oxynanopore um i just think it's a little bit hidden behind um what really needs to happen for this to be a sustainable investment what about uh, on that subject, Jen Illumina? You mentioned could they be a potential acquirer? Would that be a, a good fit if we're doing finger in the air M and A here? Um, I think that would be a, that's a little bit of a difficult call on the basis that they do have quite similar, um, you know, they do create quite similar products, so it could potentially be a little bit of a, a kind of antitrust um, concern. Illumina's also been kind of separately. Um, in a little bit of turmoil, I think it just appointed um, a new CEO after quite like a protracted battle with investors um, yesterday. So this is clearly the genomic sequencing market is clearly a little bit up in the air at the moment. It's it's got to really redefine itself as much of healthcare in general does um, after after the pandemic. Because as Alex was saying, and to take it back to Oxford Nanopore, it you know you need the the sort of use case for its technology. The ideal use case is uh, a viral pandemic spreading everywhere. Um, that really creates a lot of uh, a lot of need for the the products that Oxford Nanopore produces. Um, you know whether there's such mass need to say you know analyze the biology of a of a plant. Uh, no, that's kind of a more niche application so it's a very um yeah it's a very live issue but um we have seen quite a lot of MA action in kind of uk life sciences more general more generally at the moment um tends to be private equity that's that's more interested in in them so we'll have to see what happens with oxford nanopore i suppose if nothing else the pandemic has raised awareness of even you know any kind of flu type virus that kind of thing so that's could certainly be a long-term driver for them if not the, the big catalyst that we discussed mm. earlier. Uh, one, one thing I saw, I was looking at some analyst notes, Peel Hunt, which does have uh, them on a sell, says it's, you know, EV sales value is about 70% ahead of peers, which to me is quite refreshing for a UK company to be valued so highly. <laughs> so I'm going to see that as a positive, but there <laughs> we are. Uh, it's a long road ahead for Oxford Nanopore, as for, for many biotechs at the moment. That does bring us to the end of today's show though so thank you very much to jen to hermione to alex and to mitch and thank you to you for listening we'll see you next time on another companies and markets show hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.